In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. So David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle he instructed the messenger. When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Yerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, 
The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Our second reading today is from Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You've got this, Heather. Look at her go. Give Heather a clap. <laughs> Give me a clap. I've got two. <laughs> good morning everybody it's good to see you hey uh there's a phenomenon and it's an awkward phenomenon that i first came upon as a child and i thought gee it's hard to be a kid sometimes and then i became a parent and maybe it got worse i'm not sure but it didn't get better and as I looked at the eight o'clockers this morning and I saw grandparents, I thought, gee, I wonder what it's like for them. The awkward phenomenon is this one. I reckon a few of us have been there. When you didn't anticipate this as you watched a TV show with your mum and dad, and then a couple start to get amorous with one another. Have you been there? It doesn't need to be gratuitous, but you know, their, their, their investment in one another, shall we say, and their intensity, you know, like, and you're like, you're not looking at the screen, but you don't look at your mum or your dad and you don't look at... You. Have you been there? Has anyone else been there? Just, just Okay, good. We've all got weird family dynamics. Because the awkward was about to get more awkward for me. And you don't quite know where to look. Not knowing where to look is a, probably a right response as you hear Second Samuel 11. Because you come to this space and it is a mess of stuff. And it's a mess of stuff that involves this guy, David, who we know from 1 Samuel. And remember, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, one book with an intermission. We remember that this is the guy who, didn't God say, this is a man after my own heart? And so you come into 2 Samuel 11, with, maybe with a lens on that goes, uh, this is awkward. I don't know where to look because the guy who's meant to love God a lot is not doing things that really look like loving God a lot, loving anyone a lot. 
And maybe it gets more awkward if you remember what I shared two weeks ago, uh, building on the work of Dr. John Woodhouse, who helps us understand that when God said, this is a man after my own heart, it was a contrast with Saul, whose name means to ask. God was saying, this is a man upon whom I've set my affection. So it's not so much the space that God occupied in David's heart, but the space that David occupied in God's heart. And now it gets even more awkward, right? Because you're like, really, God? That's your choice? That's the guy you set your affection on? Wow. And you could be forgiven for not knowing where to look at this point. And if God was in the room sort of going, what were you thinking? But if nothing else, this is a perfect spot to look. This is the heart of God, isn't it? This is the love of God that is a gracious love. This is a God who sets his affections upon people like David, upon people like Shane, upon people like you, not based on the merit of the one who is loved, but based on the character of the one who is loving. We sing, this is amazing grace, and here we see, this is amazing grace. This is a man after God's own heart, a man that God sets his affection on, despite the fact that none of us would like to be a starring character in 2 Samuel 11. And so we say, well, where do I look? Here's the beauty of this book. The narrator, my little hand up there, the storyteller, he'll tell you where to look. The narrator will say, hey, check this out. Hey, look here. And what I think we're going to see this morning is that the narrator time and again says, hey, look at David in light of the characters he engages with. Look at David in light of the characters he engages with. So that's what we're going to do. We start our journey looking at David in light of a man called Joab. And you'll see this on the first slide. In the spring... When kings go off to war, David sent Joab. And Joab went with the king's men, the whole Israelite army, and they were successful, just like David had always been. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now immediately, we're introduced to a time that kings go to war, and so we expect the king to be going to war. We hear of a battle and success. Ooh, action scene. And so our eyes might normally... Because in the previous chapters, we get to see the battle scenes. We want to go there and see God's people triumphing, uh, triumphing, winning over God's enemies. But the narrator says, no, no, we're not going to look there. I want you to turn your attention back to Jerusalem. Because the king's not where he's meant to be. And someone else is leading God's people. Uh, the narrator says, I want you to look back in Jerusalem, see what you see in light of what Joab's doing. What do you see? You see David remained in Jerusalem, quite literally translated, he sat in Jerusalem. Now you remember this is the second part of one story, and we have a flashback to 1 Samuel 14, where Jonathan, you know I love Jonathan, Jonathan and his young armor bearer look up on a hill and they see these Philistine garrisons. They're They're up on the hill. And Jonathan says, I reckon we can take them. And the young armor bearer says, well, if it's in the Lord's mind, then, you know, let's go. And they go and they do this. And contrast with the bravery of these two young men fighting God's enemy, you hear of Saul and his 600 troops sat under the pomegranate tree. This is a flashback. God's man David 
is looking a lot like the people's man Saul, sat in Jerusalem in the luxury. In the light of Job, he doesn't look amazing. The story goes on and introduces us to another character. Her name is Bathsheba. She's the famous one in this, and she's beautiful. And uh, natural, like the, the description of her is that David sees her, and she's bathing, and she's very beautiful. Now, the, the, the image here, don't think, oh, yeah, I know what this is like when you wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and you just can't sleep. Not that kind of evening. This is a king who's not at war, who's not in his space, and he's bored at home. What to do? Nothing on Netflix. Siesta time. Has a sleep. <sighs> and he gets up, strolls around on the roof of the palace. And he sees a woman and she's beautiful. And this isn't Christina Angelera, you are beautiful no matter what. She's physically good to look at. That's what the, script, the narrator wants us to go, to understand. The narrator wants you to say, that's where eyes would go. But the narrator says, no, watch what David does in light of her beauty. Look at David in light of Bathsheba. David, the restless king, goes for a stroll on the roof of the palace. Twice we're told he's on the roof of the palace in this advantageous spot. And uh, he notices Bathsheba. Nothing wrong with him noticing. But now he has decisions to make. He decides to linger in his look. In lingering in his look, he sends his people to make inquiries. Sound healthy? No. Sends his people to make inquiries and he tells them to get her. Quite literally to take her. And once again we have a flashback to 1 Samuel 8. Where Samuel, when Israel asked for a king, Samuel warned them. Have a look at 1 Samuel 8 later on. And look at the repetition of Samuel saying, I'm warning you, when you have a king, a king will take, take, take. He'll take the best of your crops. He'll take the best of your herds. He'll take your sons and daughters. He'll make them his maidservants and his manservants. A king like the nations will take. And here we have David in life of a beautiful woman called Bathsheba taking. Takes her. John Woodhouse again helpfully adds to the commentary on this and says, look, the brevity of the account highlights the brutality. He takes, he sleeps, he sends. It's hardly wooing and candlelight dinners. Now, there's no word of violence, but there's certainly a power imbalance. This is David who takes her. David who has dined out on his high roof and his high authority. Bathsheba seems quite powerless to do anything about it. In fact, in my read of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, David should be dead by now because the people of God should have stood up to their king and stoned him to death for his adultery. That's what Leviticus 20:10 prescribes, but they didn't do that. And when God's law is ignored, vulnerable people suffer, and that will be the case for Bathsheba and for Uriah. Now, friends, I'm a, uh, I'm a fan of John Calvin, if you're aware of the conversation, I'm a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist, if you want to know what I am. But Calvin gets it wrong here, in my view. Calvin says Bathsheba was indiscreet. It wasn't Bathsheba who was on the roof. It was the king who was on the roof. Bathsheba actually is described here in an amazing way. She's cleansing herself 
from her impurity. There are three things we should observe. Firstly, she's cleansing herself from her monthly menstrual cycle. What does that tell us? It tells us, number one, she didn't turn up to David pregnant. She just had her period. She's not pregnant. This is not Uriah's child. This is on you, David. Number two, this is a woman observing God's law. She observes God's law and she does what Leviticus 15 prescribes in that after her cycle, and it's the same rules for men after a man has an emission, he too is meant to ceremonially clean himself. David doesn't seem to do that later on, just for the record. Bathsheba is following God's law and the narrator says, hey, look, just notice she's doing what God's law says to do. She's cleansing herself after her cycle. Contrast to David who is abusing his position, his high position, literally and figuratively. And I'm really grateful here because, as I've said to you, the really important thing is to let the narrator inform you and help direct you. And I love it when this stuff comes back. And so one of my colleagues and one of the godliest women I get to work with and know in this church, Adele Petronek, uh, sent me a little text message on Friday morning. And she says, hey, I've been thinking about this stuff with the, the purification rites. She says, what about... The mikvah, and I'm like, well, the mikvah. So I had to look into it, and we, we shared some texts, and here's the deal. Let's get out of the 21st century and back into times long ago. This isn't a woman just having a shower after a sweaty run. You don't have your own shower. You don't have your own bathtub. This isn't just a wash. This is a ceremonial cleansing. Ceremonial cleansing needs to do, be done in a stone vessel, not in a porous clay vessel. You might remember John 2 and there were the stone pots that were used for ceremonial washing. A mikvah is a bath type thing made out of stone where men and women can go for ceremonial washing. You don't get to have your very own one in your home. And rabbinic sources talk about, hey, before you be, build a synagogue, priority, have a mikvah because you need to be able to wash. This isn't Bathsheba in the comfort of her own home or she left the blinds open and was indiscreet. She's gone to the place set aside for ceremonial washing. She's doing everything right. Can I share something scary? Is this the first time that King David has chosen to look down on this spot? Is Bathsheba the first? Is she the last? Is King David something of a sexual predator? Is he a guy, I'm speculating... But is, is he a guy in the worst possible light? I see a king who stayed home whilst the fighting men went and did God's duty and whilst their wives were unattended, used his position of influence to gratify his passions. I don't have a lot of affection for King David right now. So Bathsheba seems to be doing everything God would want her to do. And David is a long way from what God would want him to do. The next person we observe is the husband of Bathsheba. His name is Uriah. Now Bathsheba's created quite a problem for David because she sent him the uh, message, I'm pregnant. It's all she's going to say in this passage. Uh, she was brave to say it. Because again, she puts her life at risk in saying this. But she says, I'm pregnant. She owns it. And what are we going to do? 
Well, David sends for Uriah the Hittite. Uh, and so we'll see that on the next slide coming up. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So he calls Uriah, who is fighting in the front line back and says, go home and wash your feet. This is more than just wash your feet. Again, this is go home and enjoy the comforts of home. Wash your feet, towel off, bed your wife, enjoy life. Do what I've been doing. Now, a couple of things that the narrator wants us to observe with Uriah. Um, he keeps telling us that he's a Hittite. Now, every time I say, I see Shari over there, Shari the Aussie, Shari the Aussie, Shari the Aussie. I'm not going to say that. But the narrator keeps wanting you to know more than once that Uriah is a Hittite. A Hittite's not a Jew. Think of Uriah almost like in the mold of like a Rahab who was not a Jew but helped the people of God and joined him. Think of Uriah like a Ruth who made a pledge to uh, her her mother-in-law Naomi, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. This is a man from the outside who is a beautiful example of God's people doing what God's people are meant to do, showing the true God and the nations coming in. So this Hittite man Uriah has come in, he's married in, uh, one would assume uh, definitely that he's been circumcised at this point, and now he even fights in God's army. Wow, what a dude. This Hittite, this, to use Jesus' language, this dog has, achieved, has taken the crumbs from the table and come to know the Lord, and his name even speaks of God's glory. Well, he is contrast with the Lord's anointed, the man David. And you can read about it later for we'll run out of time. But Uriah acts with extreme integrity. No, I'm not going to go home, wash my feet and sleep with my wife. I'll sleep in the church foyer with the servants because my teammates are still fighting God's battles and I should still be there fighting God's battles. Uriah, a man of integrity and duty and David, a man who is abusing his power, seems to have no sense of duty at this point and acts really poorly. And here's the final sting. And once again, I owe a debt to a wonderful colleague. Noah Smith, we were having lunch on Thursday and he says to me, so I was thinking about the narrator thing. I've been reading the passage and he says, you know how David sends uh, the message regarding Uriah? Uh, yeah, 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 he did. And Noah says, did you notice who carried the message? Did you notice who carried the message? The narrator makes it clear. David gives Uriah the message to take to Joab. That is his death sentence. Could your heart not just break? Do you feel like you don't know where to look? In so many senses of what we would call moral, decent, a good bloke, David's not really ticking a lot of those boxes right now, is he? Terrific. There's one more person to look at. And so we go to the next slide. And the narrator invites us to have a look at David in light of the Lord. After the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. I don't know about you, but I remember kind of the first few times reading this passage and thinking, oh, you've got to see David as a good guy, right? David's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a good guy, right? He's a man after God's own heart. And so you feel you, you import things into the story. 
And so for me, I go, ooh, Orkies with the Uriah thing. Naughty, naughty, that was bad. But at least we get a happy ending here because now they're getting married. Oh, look at that. They're having a kid. hope they put that picture on Instagram. Beautiful. And you have that feeling of closure with which masks proper judgment. What's proper judgment? Well, the narrator says, here's how to read it. But the thing David had done was evil. Now, I've changed it there because our NIVs say displeased, but um, a stronger translation such as the Holman Christian Standard Bible on this occasion go quite literal and say evil. This isn't, oh, God was like, David, but happy ending. This was, no, the Lord said, that's evil. That's wrong. That's bad. That's wicked. What's the summary of this story? Just because it ended with a marriage and a kid, this is not a love story. This is a passion story, a desire story. And now that I've told you the story, let me tell you my big idea, finally. Here's the big idea, you'll see it on the screen. When passion wears the crown, love is lost. When desire is king, love is lost. I'll put it another way. When passion drives your love, your love will be confused. When love drives your passion, watch out, your love gets contagious. When passion drives your love, your love will be confused. But when love drives your passion, amazing, your love is contagious. There's a recent saying, and it is recent. It's failed to be tested yet. And it won't pass the test because it's never been true and it never will be true. They say that love is love. But that's not true. Love is actually very particular, is it not? Doesn't everybody love 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8? Love is patient. Love is kind. We hear the attributes of love. We hear what love is not like. And God is very particular to say, hey, love's a particular thing. Don't confuse it for imitations. A great thinker of the early centuries was St. Augustine. And St. Augustine was answering the question of evil. Do you ever wonder, where does evil come from? Who invented evil? Well, we know God's creator and he doesn't make evil. Uh, And we know, you might want to go, oh, the the devil made evil, but the devil's not a creator. Only God's a creator. So where does evil come from? Everyone's scratching their head. And Augustine says, I'll help you. Evil is when love is distorted. Evil is when love is confused. Evil is when I love disproportionately. Evil is when love is mistaken. Evil is when we accept statements like, Love is love, because it's not. Love is love is a sentiment that could have been written by the Satan himself. And a t-shirt a demon would be happy to wear. Because it flies exactly in the face of what God has said, but it counterfeits so beautifully well. When passion wears the crown, love gets lost. And I look at David here and I'm saying these things here. Wow, that's, that's big stuff. But it's alive in our time. I mean, it's easy to be like David today. You don't even need to be a king. I mean, look at David. All he had to do was look at the woman 
from the position he had, his position of privilege, he looked at the woman or the man that he thought was most attractive, that, that he would desire. And so he clicked on her. He hit play, called her into his service. And when he was done, he cast her away. This is the world of pornography today for us. This account is a pornographic account. It's porneia, sexual immorality, graphere, recording or writing. This is for God's glory and, and our edification, but pornography today destroys people. Pornography is just like 2 Samuel 11, where we are able, and I, just to be clear, this isn't for the guys. Women are the fastest growing users of porn in the world today. Admittedly, us guys had a big head start, but we're not going to good places. This is where, take the one you want to take. When you're done, turn the computer off and send them away. But then you go, uh-oh, David heard she's pregnant. She's got a husband. You write my search history. That's all right. We'll delete the search history for David that was killing Uriah. It's alive today. When passion wears the crown, love is lost. And taking happens, and evil manifests, and it, it's always evil in the realm of pornography. When passion drives sexual activity, rather than love drives sexual activity, love is lost. So every, everybody often thinks, so you just got to get married and all the problems go away. No, love is, sex is always the physical manifestation of an act of love. That is, it's an act of service, it's an other person-centered thing. So it's very easy to be evil within a marriage. Sex is always an act of service. There's only one space for it. Passion drives us to, lo to, to love, and I believe we do love, but we love in a distorted way outside of marriage, and we were so close, we slept together because we love one another. Well, you're leading one another in evil, in sin. It's not loving to help someone distance themselves from the Lord. And so let's not confuse ourselves and call sex outside of marriage love. It's passion driven. It's always been evil and it always will be evil. Homosexual sex, it always has been evil. It always will be evil. And can I ask you to consider something? Because sometimes you think if I'm all by myself, surely things are okay. I'd love to ask you to think about if sex is an act of physical service to one that I love, to the other, what will you make of solo masturbation? Will you call this scratching an itch? Or will you perhaps say this is the gratification of the fleshly desire? That's for you to think about under God, under his spirit, and under the scriptures. The thing with grace that's so amazing is that it doesn't ignore what's wrong. It doesn't call what is wrong, evil, or wicked something that it's not. What grace does is it loves and it goes forward in spite of this. Do you know why I love that David's in the Bible? Because David gives us a beautiful picture of the character of God. That God is a merciful, kind, and gracious God. I love that. I need to be reminded of that. And I love that David's in the Bible because he gives me a beautiful and clear picture of who I am. 
a wicked and evil and broken man who needs a gracious and kind God. It's really good to have David around. He shows you just how God is. Friends, can I take you back to the beginning, this idea of a man after God's own heart? Don't look away. Look God squarely in the face and go, you have a capacity to love that the world just cannot comprehend. And God will say, yeah, I'll show you where to look to see it. Look at my son. I demonstrate my love in this. Whilst you were still my enemy, he died for you. That's how my love goes. That's how my love works. You are a person after my own heart too. I want to pour my love out upon you. And I love that Jesus in what he does, like David, shows me what God's character is like, show me who, shows me who God is. But Jesus does something David can't do. David shows me a picture in the mirror of who I am now. Jesus shows me a picture of who I was created to be and who the redeemed and eventually glorified me can be. That's why Jesus is hope. Grace moves forward. And so I've laid some heavy stuff on you. As I wrap up, I want to share some ways forward. Can I share some ways forward? I think you've earned them. Ways forward, here we go. How do we overcome when passion gets the best of us? Number one, sin boldly. That doesn't mean sin more. That doesn't mean sin proudly. Some will say sin proudly and start saying God's saying things that he doesn't say. I heard a wonderful talk the other day where someone said, but doesn't Jesus, he sits with sinners and he sits with tax collectors and he sits with prostitutes. And the preacher said, yes, he does. And they left changed. He didn't leave changed. Sin boldly doesn't mean change what God has said. Sin boldly doesn't say, let culture lead the way. When Christians come to me and they say, oh, do you watch Game of Thrones? My response is, no, I'm Christian. Now, I'm being a little bit provocative, but think hard about what you will watch on television. Sin boldly doesn't mean be ashamed. Adam was ashamed when he and Eve sinned. They ran and hid from God. Sin boldly, as Martin Luther put, put it, understands Roman 8, Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, when you sin, package it all up, grab the lot, all of it, all of it, and bring it right into the shadow of the cross. Lord God, I've fallen, I've failed, I've messed up. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, just fresh starts. If you're not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. May God's Spirit bless you today. Come and put your trust in Jesus, for he is the only hope. Be attentive to your calling. David wasn't. He wasn't where he was meant to be. He wasn't doing what kings are meant to do. Romans 13, we heard this morning, Heather read it for us, says, your calling is to say goodbye to the fleshly desires and to now walk in the new way. Yeah, but I mess up. That's okay. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's start again. And don't label yourself what you're not. You're called a saint, not a sinner. Though you do sin, you're a saint. So let's walk in our new identity. Let's be who we're meant to be. Let's listen to our calling. Idle hands are sometimes the devil's tool. Let's get on doing God's stuff. It makes it a lot harder. You don't have time for the devil's stuff when you're busy doing God's stuff. Seek true consent. We might need to say more about that next week, but the thing I want to say this week is 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own, you were bought. Before you invest, and it's all through First and Second Samuel, before you go to war, check with the Lord. Inquire of the Lord. Before you go to passions, love, or any relationship, Check with the Lord. Do you have his consent for this relationship? 
Number four, don't walk alone. Galatians 6 tells us to bear one another's burdens, to help each other out, to walk together. Two have a great return for their labor. That's just wisdom from Ecclesiastes. Sometimes that's with the person, sometimes that's with the resource. On the screen are some resources. They're here for you today if you would like to check them out. I can't let you take it home today, but you can certainly order one. But there's a couple of copies of these books in the Welcome Lounge so you can flick through. There's Every Woman's Battle. There's Wired for Intimacy. There's Every Man's Battle. There's Teen Sex by the Book, another helpful one. And there's What God Has Joined Together, which you can take away today, which will tell you a lot about what a marriage is meant to be and what sexual activity is about. And finally, friends, before we share the Lord's Supper together, here's the beautiful one that David is an absolute specialist in. Embrace repentance. The world tells you you should never repress your feelings or your passions or whatever. Look to you. Look to the things that you want to do. Be led by those things. David says in Psalm 32, Man, when I kept silent, my bones were weak. Your hand was heavy upon me. But when I confessed and turned to you, there was joy. David prays in the light of this encounter, and this is why David is a beautiful man to have in the family. Because screw up as much as he does, he gets the character of God. And the most valuable thing you can have beyond your own character, let me say boldly, is your conviction, your faith in the character of God, your faith in the person of God. That's what saves us. And so David is a guy who is able to say to God, create in me a clean heart. Restore me. Indeed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore unto me that time where I realized I fall short of your glory. And may I have that joy of being known by you that you have refreshed me and restored me before we take communion together before we come to the lord's table where we are welcomed according to his grace his character and his love rather than anything we've done we're going to confess in song stay seated for this we're going to sing together the words of david and ask that wherever our passions or things like that have led our love rather than our love lead our passion Lord, restore me, renew me, for your character is such and you will make me new. Let's stay seated and sing together.